Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Great to be with you this morning. Um, we are continuing in our series through the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the very back. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 7, uh, which for most of you will be like the second to last page in your Bibles. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series through the book of Revelation, and uh, though the middle section of the book, uh, chapters 16 through 20, uh, are some of the, sorry, 6 through 20, uh, are some of the most confusing chapters in all of Scripture, uh, the good news for us is that as the book ends, we get increasing clarity as we enter the final pages of Scripture. In chapter 6 through 20, uh, we witnessed a wild, symbolic, spiraling series of sevens over the course of 14 chapters. Uh, Seven seals were broken, seven trumpets are blown, seven bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth, uh, followed by this mysterious paragraph about a 1,000-year reign of Christ. And these are the topics that we've been uh, exploring and wrestling with over the last four weeks. If you've been here, who is the beast? Who or what is Babylon? Uh, What's the significance of all of these series of sevens? What is this mysterious mention of a thousand year reign of Christ? Having wrestled with all of those topics, we are ready to press on toward the end. Uh, Picking up here in Revelation 20 verse 7. And uh, before we jump in, I'm just going to say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, as we um, walk through, celebrate the Advent season, uh, we are um, just reflective and so grateful on the fact that you came, uh, that light came into the darkness. And as we'll see today, you came then, you came once to bear sin, to actually make a way for us to be free. Uh, And yet, even as we celebrate you coming once, it's inseparable from the fact that you will come again. And I pray that that um, reality, that the beauty of that reality, that the weight of that reality uh, would just rest on us this morning uh, as we open up your scripture and as we turn our hearts, minds, uh, attentions, wills toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation 20, verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of the age, when all is said and done, Christ will return in judgment. The dead will be raised to life. We will stand before God to answer for the life that we've lived. Regardless of how you interpret the other chapters, Regardless of what you think of the millennial reign, all of Scripture is clear on this point. At the end of the age, Satan will be crushed and done away with, and every person who has ever lived will stand before God in judgment. Hebrews 9 says it this way. It says, Jesus appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Each of us will die once and stand before God in judgment. And Christ will return to bring salvation and justice to the earth. And no matter who you are or where you were born or who your parents were, or what you thought life was all about, you will stand before God when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And I will argue that while this reality is uh, sobering, even jarring in some ways, it is ultimately good news. In fact, it is wrapped up in the gospel itself. In our day and age, judgment or the idea of God's judgment is usually regarded as a negative thing. We tend to cringe at the idea of God's judgment. Many people inside and outside of the church simply wish it were not so. And so even inside the church, we tend to struggle with this idea of God's judgment, or we attempt to explain away the reality of God's judgment. 
But ultimately, the writers of Scripture say that the judgment of humanity and creation is a good thing. It was something to be celebrated, anticipated, hoped for, prayed for. Lord, we are longing for you to come and judge the living and the dead. In fact, if you were to flip back to chapter 6 in the book of Revelation, as the, the seals are being opened, we witness this scene. It says, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They were martyred. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Those who had been martyred for the gospel are actually hungering, thirsting for the judgment of God on the earth because they know what it will mean for the earth. The end goal of creation is nothing remotely like what you and I are experiencing right now. It is nothing short of the new heavens and the new earth, a place without darkness or sin or pain or death or mourning or tears, a place in which the people of God are fully restored, fully healed, completely whole, completely reconciled to God and completely reconciled to one another, flourishing in his presence for all time. All of creation and every human being who is trusted in Christ will be made new. And the scriptures say that all of the pain and heartache and darkness of this world will not be worth comparing to the glory that is to come. More on the glory next week. All that to say, there's this stunning grand future out front. This eternal age without chaos or darkness or pain. But in order to get there, the reality is that the evil of this world must be removed. That means Satan, who is the very source of evil in our reality, must be destroyed. It means all of the beasts and Babylons, for those of you who have been here the last few weeks, all of those who Satan has empowered through the millennia must be destroyed. And all who bought into Satan's deceptions and rejected the love of God in Christ will meet the same fate as the one they followed. 
judgment is a necessary thing. It is a means to an end. And when we understand the end, when we understand where creation is headed, the means become all the more necessary, and I would argue, all the more beautiful. How will God bring about this end? How will God take creation from where it is to the new heavens and the new earth? Well, first off, he invites every single human being on the planet to come to him in repentance. To turn from their old life, to turn from sin and death, and to turn to him receiving his gift of eternal life that's made available in Jesus. That's God's desire for everyone on earth. And many of us in this room have already done that, have, have walked through that act of repenting of our old self and receiving uh, what Christ has done for us. The scriptures say it's actually not God's desire that anyone be destroyed. And so we partner with God in sharing the gospel, which has the power to save. We partner with God in extending the invitation of repentance and eternal life to all of humanity. The narrative uh, that we get in Revelation depicts a world in which some do repent, but there are also many who refuse to repent, even to the very end of the age. And Revelation is actually fascinating in that as you're reading through the narrative, it consistently pictures a, a final battle shaping up between Christ and the rebellious of this world at the end of the age. Uh, five different times in the book of Revelation, it talks about images, pictures, this final battle uh, shaping up, and they use a variety of images. But the part that's fascinating is that there's never actually a final battle. There is no battle. There is no war. If you read through the book of Revelation, there is no heavenly army. There is no earthly army of God's people joining in on some final battle. In every scenario, the rebellious of the world gather in their rebellion against God, and Jesus essentially speaks a word that brings about their destruction. In the example we just read a few minutes ago, a fire just falls from heaven, and that's the end of it. But Jesus is routinely pictured in these end-of-the-world scenarios with a sword coming out of his mouth, which I always thought was just weird. What's the deal with that? But the imagery here is that judgment is proceeding from the mouth of God. It's a word of judgment that is spoken out. Jesus speaks a word against the evil of this world, 
and wipes it off the face of the map. Just as God spoke a generative word at the beginning of the age, bringing things into existence, creating reality as we know it, so too his words at the end of the age hold the same power. They wipe evil off the face of the map. They usher in a new heavens and a new earth. It's a regenerative word that is spoken over creation. And this is ultimately good news. And when we see what God is up to and and the purpose and the results of God's judgment, we too actually begin to cry out with the saints. How long, Lord? How long until you bring this about? How long until you come and speak a new word, a regenerative word that wipes evil off the face of the map, that ushers in this place where we long to be. We should be eager for that event. And some of us have experienced injustice and oppression. And if you have, you get this. In fact, you've likely prayed these prayers before. But in all reality, some of us haven't experienced injustice and oppression. And this isn't our cry. If you live a very privileged life, then odds are you aren't crying out for Jesus to return. But for those who have tasted injustice, For those who labor under oppression, they hunger, they they cry out, they thirst for the justice of God. Alan Bosak, a South African pastor who was laboring under the oppression of apartheid, said it this way. He said, there's hardly been a place where the police and the army have not wantonly murdered our children, piling atrocity upon atrocity for the sake of the preservation of apartheid and white privilege. And as we go from funeral to funeral, burying yet another victim of law and order, or yet another killed by government-protected death squads, the cry continues to rise to heaven, How long, Lord? How long? He goes on to say that what the church needs today is more anger at the state of injustice in our world, not less. Twenty-some million slaves and counting poverty and abuse right here where we sit. 
and of course in the nations abroad as well. The sweatshops, the starvation, the oppressive patterns of racism, the widespread destruction of our planet driven by human greed, not human need. Our world, by all the measurable standards, is hurting. In fact, Scripture says it this way. It says the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. As followers of Jesus, we join with creation in groaning. We wait eagerly. The people of God cry out, How long, O Lord, until you return, until you put an end to the madness of this age? How long do you wipe evil off the face of the map? Till you call it to account? Till you put it to an end? How long? Because your return and your judgment are actually the very things we've been waiting for. Which is why the biblical writers say, come quickly, Jesus. Come now if you can. And this is where we get to the incredible irony of the modern mindset on judgment. Many modern, especially secular thinkers in the Western world, hate the idea of a God coming to judge the earth. It is a shocking, distasteful thing but the irony is that while we cringe at the idea of judgment, we also long for God to remove evil from our world. In fact, the, the deepest irony is that those who most hate the idea of God coming in judgment also judge God for not coming in judgment. Two of the great objections to faith in our post-Christian culture is the idea that God will one day come in judgment and the fact that he hasn't done it yet. We're upset that judgment is on the horizon and we are equally upset that God has not brought judgment already on the earth. We actually judge God for all of the evil in the world. We question his goodness. And simultaneously, we hate the fact that he's promised to come back and unleash his goodness on the world. Wiping evil from the face of the map as he does. In reality... God is the only being who has pure righteousness in his very character. 
just part of who he is. God is the only one who has the unique ability and the unique reserved power to judge and bring justice. And it is his right alone. It is his power alone. And the good news of Scripture is that God will not allow injustice to endure forever, but he promises that he will return and bring all of creation in line with his character, in line with his goodness. This is the hope of Scripture, that evil will one day completely be destroyed. This is our hope. And this hope, it not only gives us vision and and passion to work against evil and injustice in the present, right here and right now, but it also gives us a settled confidence that God will bring all injustice to an end and that every person will stand before him to give an account of their lives. And and so we, as we carry the gospel into the world, it, it comes with a word of hope in the form of judgment. Evil does not have the last word. The beasts and Babylons of this world do not have the last word. Satan, with all the power he has in this age, does not have the last word. Jesus does. And when he speaks those last words, all evil in every time, place, and culture will be called to account before him. God alone carries the burden of bringing judgment on this world. God never asked you to carry that. He didn't ask you to carry the burden of judgment. You can lay it at his feet. Each and every one of you has been hurt by someone. All of us have. But for some of you, that hurt, that pain, that wound, that word, that abuse, that betrayal, that whatever it was, cut deep. And in your woundedness, The human temptation is actually not toward forgiveness. It is toward unforgiveness. It is toward bitterness. It's toward vengeance. It's toward judgment. I would kill them if I could. I hate that person. It's this desire to carry out judgment and your form of justice 
on someone else, on your neighbor, on your family member, on your enemy, on whoever it is, on the person who has wounded you the most. And so the reality of judgment and not only informs our view of justice and injustice on a global scale, it, it not only informs us of the fate of the beasts and the Babylons of this world, but it also becomes deeply personal in that the promise of God's justice is an invitation to release your burden to him. God promises to bring everyone to account before him so you don't have to. Judgment belongs to God alone. It's not yours. It's not mine. And that's really good news. That is a a freeing word, a liberating word. You can forgive and release the people who have hurt you. Because vengeance and justice and judgment aren't up to you. It's not in your hands. They're in God's. And his version is going to be way, way better than yours. We are afraid that if we forgive them, then they've gotten away with it. We're afraid that that if we forgive them, then somehow there won't be consequences for what they did to us, that it didn't matter or it wasn't a big deal. But that's not what forgiveness says. Forgiveness releases that person from your grip. It it is removing your hand from their neck. It says it was a big deal. That this hurt me more deeply than I thought anyone could have ever hurt me. but I release you into God's hands. And I trust His judgment, and I trust His justice more than my own. I rest in that. In all reality, there will be consequences, and they haven't gotten away with it. but they will be held accountable before God. And therefore, you can release them. As I was working through the teaching this week and wrestling with this idea, I actually found myself forgiving and releasing people who had hurt me. All the way back to my childhood. Just, oh, that memory, that wound, that word, that whatever it was. God, I forgive that person. 
I release that part all the way up to the present. I just sat and just took the time and just, God, I release them. I trust you. I trust your version of justice more than I trust my own. And as you do that, you become free. I'm free to work against injustice in this world without being crushed when that injustice endures. And I'm free to forgive and release people into the perfect judgment, into the perfect justice of a perfect God. Because when I stand before God at the end of the age, I don't want to stand there with a heart that's been warped by bitterness and unforgiveness. I I want to stand there with a heart that's been filled and molded by Christ. A A heart that rejoices in his arrival, a heart that is free in every sense of the word, ready to rejoice in the new heavens and the new earth. And each one of us is going to stand there before him. After the destruction of evil, after God has spoken a regenerative word over creation, and wiped it off the face of the map. John sees this vision of a great white throne and him who is seated on it. And it says, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And this is the final point that I want to make this morning. There is often some confusion as to the exact nature of the judgment we will face. According to the gospel, we trust in the blood of Jesus alone, in his righteousness, in his forgiveness and cleansing and regeneration, in his salvation. We trust that as we give our lives to Jesus in faith, that our name is actually written in the book of life. Our eternal future rides not on our own good or bad deeds, but on whether or not we trusted in Jesus and received the free gift of his salvation. That is the single factor that will determine whether you follow Jesus into the new heavens and the new earth, or or, or whether you follow Satan into destruction? Did I trust in Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection? If I did, my name is written in the book of life. That's the deciding factor. 
Did you receive Jesus, who is the life? Or did you reject that life? In essence, choosing the alternative, choosing death and destruction. If you reject life, that's all that's left. The only thing outside of life is death. And so every human being is going to make that choice to either accept Jesus or reject him for some alternative. If we accept Jesus and we receive that divine gift of life, we enter the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not the end of the story. When we stand before God, and we will, we not only stand before him as redeemed sons and daughters whose names are written in the book of life, but we will also have our lives examined before him. Or or in the words of Revelation that we just read, each person was judged according to what they had done. Okay, and I want to bring some clarity to this. The most important thing you can do is put your hope, faith, trust in Jesus. To receive his sacrificial death and resurrection. That that is the basis of your acceptance into God's presence into the new heavens and the new earth. But notice that the life you live still matters. You will enter that place by the blood of Jesus, but the life you live still matters. In fact, Jesus said that some will be greater and some will be lesser in the kingdom of heaven. He says, did you follow me? and obey my commands? Did you walk with me and follow my voice? Did you risk everything for my sake? Were you willing to lay down your life if necessary to see the gospel and the kingdom expand? Well, those people will actually be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Which is why when you read through the parables of Jesus, sometimes it has this mention in the parables of people who are shut out of the kingdom. Because that will be a reality. But it also talks about the people who are accepted into the kingdom. He says some of them will be the least and some of them will be the greatest. Some of them will be in charge of one city and some of them will be in charge of ten. This is why Jesus says, hey, use your time, talent, resources, whatever you have in this life to see the kingdom of God advance, not just for hedonism and self-living and self-pleasure, but actually for the advance of the kingdom. And if you do, you'll have what? Treasures in heaven. Okay, so, so the way that you live out this life will actually affect your experience in that place. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive his due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Part of the perfect judgment and perfect justice of God is actually carried out in eternity. We enter the kingdom of heaven purely by the blood of Christ on our behalf. There's nothing you can do, good or bad, to, to earn your way or lose your right to enter that. It's, it's purely on Jesus. Did, did you accept him or reject him? But our status in the kingdom of heaven is actually based on how we live this life. Here and now. Your Monday mornings, your Tuesday afternoons, your dreams, your goals, your radical obedience to Christ, the way you use your time, your talent, your resources, everything that he's given you. Will you bury your gifts or will you use them? Will you risk everything to follow Jesus or, or will you shrink back in order to do what's comfortable? None of those have any bearing on whether or not you have a place in God's eternity, whether or not your name is written in the book of life. But they will determine your, your, your status, your experience of that place. And when you stand before him, you and I will give an account. So we'll end with this uh, question this morning, and the worship team can go ahead and come back up. It's a simple question. Am I ready to stand before Jesus and give an account of my life? Am I living in such a way that lines up with the future that's out front? That does the way I'm living actually make sense if the scriptures are true? If not, if there's this resounding no in your heart, then, then let's sort that out this morning. You before God, let sort that out. I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're just going to take a few minutes uh, to kind of meditate on that question. Let's pray.